All right, let's uh, let's rock and roll, or dive in, or whatever you want to call it. We don't rock and roll, right? Um, if I could ask your prayer again for my family, my family is Mallory is now sick with who knows what. So uh, I stayed home from work today and watched uh, Hadley and. I took her over to my parents' house so Mallory could sleep, and we chilled there for the day. But if you could pray for Mallory, she has possibly the flu, I don't know. She has had a fever last night, and her body feels like a truck's hit it. So um, pray for her. If you could pray for uh, John's family, his father passed away. Um, funeral is Saturday. In viewing is also Saturday at a funeral home in Farmington Hills, I think. Yeah, it's the couple that sits there, John and Chris. And then um, I haven't heard any update on Jim's. Was it his mom? So I don't know what the deal is there, but they're not here, so I'm guessing that it might not be going very well, or at least status quo maybe, But because um, they're typically here every week, so... Um, let's be in prayer for Jim's mom. And then uh, also one prayer request that I haven't even shared with you, Dad, but um, a very, very, very close friend of mine, his name's Joseph Brader. He took my place at Lake Drive in Milwaukee at the church I was at. And uh, I just found out that his brother got diagnosed with cancer today. Um, his brother's name is Matt. He just got married six months ago-ish. Um and they don't know any, I mean, literally I got texted about 30 minutes after they found out. So they don't know the, uh, the serious, I mean, obviously can't, every version of cancer is serious, but they don't know the intensity of that cancer. They don't know how far it's spread or even what kind. They don't know if it's bone or, or, uh, cancer in the lymph system or, or what have you, but, um, there were a lot of body complications. He had some uh, signs that represented asthma, so he had some issues in his lungs. And then he had fallen at work and injured his leg. He went in for the to get his leg looked at, and they discovered that he had what they thought was like a mis- Ill- ill-formed hip. And because there's a lot of pain in his hip, and upon doing more digging, it looked like they thought he had a fungal infection that had infected his his lungs and his hip that deformed his hip. And then they went and did a biopsy to decide determine what kind of fungus it was or whatever, and they discovered that it was cancerous. Um, so they don't know if it's cancer in his lung and his hip, or if it's just one or the other. They just know that whatever was down by his hip was cancer. Um, the assumption that his brother has is that that's connected, um, which would not be good because that means it's spread um, already. So, be in prayer. His his parents and brother and daughter or uh, sister in law live in Milwaukee. I was just out there visiting with them, and they just found out this out today. So his his parents just drove out from to Philadelphia. Um, the, all through the night the other night. So um, things aren't good, obviously. So if you would be in prayer for that. What's his name again, Jerry? His name's Matt. Matt. 
His wife's name is Shally. So let's uh, pray together for these things, and then we'll dive into our, our study tonight. Father, we come with heavy hearts, knowing that life in a sin-cursed world really stinks, knowing that life here isn't easy, and life here is frustrating and hard, and uh, it rarely ever goes our way, but it always goes your way, and I think that's when we really struggle the most, when we as believers know that your way is right, that you do what you please, that you, that nothing happens without your sovereign allowance, yet, and you say you're good, but things don't seem good to us. And we have a hard time understanding that. Yet we know, because we believe in you, that you are good. And that these circumstances, even though we can't see past them or around them or through them at this present moment, we know that you still are good, working good for your people. And God, that's especially hard to pray in the instance of John and Chris or um, the Maters or... Joseph and his his brother Matt, I just I just pray that you would that your grace would reign and it would be triumphant in these circumstances in the lives of all these people who have been acutely touched by the consequences of sin, not necessarily consequences in their life, I mean, but just the consequences of sin in humanity. And, and so we pray that your grace would be powerful and, and, and be displayed well in these difficult weak times. Help us tonight, help me to teach with clarity um, what could potentially be a difficult lesson, and I pray that you would help all of us that are listening, and even myself as I listen to myself, that I would help understand this stuff even more fully as I understand how Christ is the centerpiece of Scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so tonight um, we're going to just continue our study from last week. Sorry, guys. Uh, Unacceptable. Oh, you're not even coming in? <laughs> oh, no, I'm in that class. Oh, good. Mark against me if I don't get in that class. Um, I thought we had an addition. So this week we're going to discover, so the goal of our lesson is to discover that the God of the New Testament is a promise-keeping God, to discover that he's a promise-keeping God. And so last week we looked at that he was a promise-making God, but this week it's going to be that God is a promise-keeping God. What I tried to do for you is provide what I attempted to draw last week and what I've heard is very difficult penmanship to read, um, both in size and uh, accuracy. So I tried to use what little computer skill I have to give you a picture of what was in my head. And I think it turns out a little bit more clearly this way than the other. So 
Let's go over this this image, God's big picture. So the whole story of Scripture, if we could boil it down, we could boil it down into this, that we started with a right relationship with God. God was Adam and Eve's God, and Adam and Eve were God's people. There was a right relationship, a fellowship, enjoyment. There was no sin. There was peace. There was harmony, and so on. And that is the relationship that God created us to enjoy with Him, and that is the 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 relationship that existed in the garden. Then, man sinned. Man chose to rebel against their holy creator, doing that which he explicitly told them not to do, and that broke the relationship. So God would have been just at that moment in time to just wipe them out, judge them, and he could have started over, or he could have said, I'm not dealing with you stupid, sinful people anymore. We're done. And he could have just kept on existing in his triunity for the remainder of eternity. But instead, he chose to be very merciful. He chose to withhold just judgment on Adam and Eve at that very moment and incinerate them. And he chose to make them a promise instead. And he said, obviously there's judgment and I'm going to judge you and there's a lot of bad things. Right? But even that was an act of mercy because he judged them, but it was a a patient judgment even. And it wasn't the most aggressive form of judgment that he could could have used. But in his mercy, he moved towards them, judged them appropriately, but he also promised them that one was going to come from Adam and Eve's line who is going to crush the serpent, who is going to destroy Satan. And that promise is found in Genesis 3.15. Sometimes in theology books you would hear this. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, which is just a big long term for first Proto-Evangelium Gospel, so the first Gospel. And so in Genesis 3.15 we find that God promises to do a work of restoration. He is now taking the initiative to come after his people who are lost and rebelled against him and continues to give them mercy and continues to give them grace. And so we find that he pursues hard after this restoration through redemption. He's going to send a seed to redeem his rebellious people. And what will ultimately happen as we move to Old Testament and New Testament is at the very end of it all, those people who repent and believe and trust in this work, the seed promise of God, will enjoy the new heavens and new earth where that relationship will once again be restored as it was created to be in the garden. And we will once again enjoy that relationship where God will be our God and we will be his people. We will enjoy that restored relationship together. So if I could, if that's a fair representation of the scope of scripture, what we did is last week we traced, because remember the idea last week was, so how does God reveal himself in the Old Testament? And we could have, in a very laborious way, gone through all of God's attributes and and sought them out in the text and pages of the Old Testament and said, see, God is this. And then we could have done that again this week. And that would have been a fair and legitimate way of, of talking about God revealed in the Old Testament. 
But what I attempted to do, especially in light of the fact that the God of the Old Testament is commonly portrayed in such a vicious, yucky, vilified way, I tried to show that the God of the Old Testament was a promise-making God and that He is ours. And so we walked through just these big covenants. A covenant is just a promise. We walk through some of the big promises that hold the Old Testament together that are kind of like the flagships uh, of the Old Testament, that the storyline of the Old Testament moves across. And so we just walk from the seed promise in Genesis 3.15. We briefly mentioned the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and then the New. The New would be the last covenant that was promised in the Old Testament of the big covenant, so to speak. And, and that was promised in the prophets, Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel, even a little bit in Isaiah. And so what I would like to do today is our task is to discover the God of the New Testament. How does he reveal himself? Well, we could say that if the Old Testament is a promise-making God, that the New Testament then is the promise-keeping God. So how exactly does God keep all of his promises? And that's what I would like to spend our time looking at today. Now, thankfully, I hate to say this, but I'm glad we have a little bit of a smaller group because we're going to get kind of potentially intense. Um, I'm going to do all the talking because I've had little time to prepare. It's all been preparation up in here, which is always the scariest thing. Um, and not a lot of preparation on paper. So I've got all these amazing thoughts in here, and I'm not going to be able to get them out very clearly. So I'm going to talk. You're going to have to listen. You can ask questions by all means as we walk through, but I don't have a lot of questions prepared for you. Um, So it's a little less discussion-oriented than I would like. But if you would look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is where we'll begin our discussion of So how is God a promise-keeping God as revealed in the New Testament? And I have to confess that this topic is one that excites me greatly because I love trying to figure out, and I have since the moment I stepped foot in seminary, I love trying to figure out how my Bible fits together how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate, how the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament relate, how I can understand my place in the history of Israel and how I can understand my place in the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles. And how when the New Testament writers use the Old Testament, how how does that work? And so I, I love this idea of trying to trace the big flow and the big theme and how this whole thing works and how the story of Scripture fits together is one big thing. Because it is. It's one book written by one God and it has something that holds it and binds it all together. And I would like to suggest to you that what holds and binds the entirety of Scripture together is God's Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this. And if I could actually start in verse 18... Paul is saying, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him, 
It has always been yes. Verse 20 is the key verse here. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So in verses 18 and 19, Paul appeals to God's faithfulness, and he is doing so on the basis of trying to get the Corinthian believers to realize that he's not essentially being bipolar or schizophrenic and going back and forth. Ah, should I come? Should I go? What am I saying? Am I saying true? Am I saying false? Is my message good? Is my message bad? He's saying, no, my message, the gospel that I proclaim, my intent for you and my visits to you, they're pure, they're yes, they're not no. But then he goes and makes this comment and says that this God is faithful and that every promise he has made is... What just happened? Okay, I don't know what just happened. I guess it doesn't matter. Whatever. You can look at the pretty mountains. I'll figure out how to put it back up there in a second. But... What we find here in verse 20 is that Paul is saying that every promise of God, every promise of God is somehow in some way fulfilled in the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's kind of mind-blowing. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 says this he said to them this is jesus speaking this is what i told you while i was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of moses the prophets and the psalms so that's a way uh, of speaking of the whole of of the old testament all that is in the old testament about me all of it has to be fulfilled john chapter 5 Verses 39 through 40 says this. John 5, 39 and 40. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. There in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, have I come to fulfill to abolish the law? No, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And there, the idea is is that all that the Old Testament and the law specifically is pointing to is Jesus, his person and his work. So, God is a promise-keeping God because God is the God of Jesus. So how does Jesus... Help us understand. How does Jesus help us see this promise-keeping God? How is He the fulfillment? So, number one, I would say Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and I would say that He is the fulfillment both directly and indirectly. Right? Because, for instance, in the in the Abrahamic promise, which we'll get to in a moment, He's not literally the land. Now, some people might argue that, but he's not the land. (laughs) He didn't become the specific plot of land that the nation of Israel was uh, entered into. So Jesus, number one, is the fulfillment 
directly or indirectly, of all of God's promises. Number two, Jesus is the key to understanding the fullness of all of God's promises. He is the key to understanding the fullness of all of God's promises. So one, Jesus is the fulfillment, both directly and indirectly, or indirectly, of all of God's promises. Two, he's the key to understanding the fullness of all of God's promises. And number three, Jesus is the path to participation in the fullness of all of God's promises. Jesus is the path to participation in the fullness of all of God's promises. Any questions so far? Are you with me? Is that a question or no, just all right? Now let me let me uh, blow your minds for just a moment. Something that um, is a paradigm or a big idea that I believe is an undeniably clear big idea that runs through all of Scripture that. In order to understand it all correctly, you gotta get. <clears throat> and it's an idea called already, not yet. Already, not yet. You're thinking, okay, you're you're talking gibberish now. I am. Not really. Or you could think of it as present future, or you could think of it as now and then. But when we are talking about God fulfilling his promises, God fulfills his promises often, and I would say probably most often, already and not yet. He fulfills his promises in the present and in the future. He fulfills his promises in the now and the then. Okay? So in other words... You could think of fulfillment as a progressive fulfillment, or he makes the promise and he begins to keep the promise and he begins to keep the promise. Let me give you an example. And all of you can, I I believe, will get this. When I mean already, not yet, let's just take our salvation. Are you presently already saved? The correct answer is a resounding yes. But do you have your glorified body yet? Are you in heaven with God? Are you enjoying the new heavens and new earth of blissful singing and worship of God? No. But do you have part of that now? Do you enjoy the benefits of your salvation now? The presence of the Spirit in your life? The means of assurance that God has given us? Relationship with one another? Enjoyment of the body of Christ? You bet. We are as good as saved now, right? 
So there is the already aspect of our salvation. God is fulfilling his saving promises to you incrementally or in stages, progressively. In the already, you are saved now and in the not yet, in the future. Does that make sense? Does anyone have questions about that? And if you want to argue with me, this is the place to do it. So if you can keep that idea in your mind, I think that some of these things will make a lot more sense as we walk through the promises that are not on the screen right now. So we're going to walk through now these Old Testament promises. And I would like to briefly summarize what these things are. Very briefly. And then I'm going to try to make some comments about and point you to some New Testament texts that are going to suggest how Jesus or either fulfills these things or is progressively fulfilling them. So, number one, the Abrahamic covenant. Does anyone know what that is? What is the Abrahamic covenant referring to? Okay. So God, out of his own grace, calls Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, right? And he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Right? I will bless you. I will make you great. I will give you a son. And I will bless all nations everywhere through you. So we could summarize those things down to I'm going to make your nation great I'm going to give you a place to live a land right I'm going to give you a seed I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to get I'm going to allow you to be a blessing to all nations so commonly referred to a land a seed and a blessing these are found in Genesis 12 Genesis 15 and then Genesis 17 is the covenant of circumcision which really is just a confirmation of this Abrahamic covenant. So we see that in the Old Testament, that promise laid out. Then we get to the New Testament and we see right off the bat, opening pages of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Listen to what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if I could do add an ellipses and go all the way down to verse 17. Thus, after it gets done with citing all those names, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile. And then from the exile to the Messiah, there were another 14. And so Matthew is careful to trace that Jesus is the seed, the promised son of Abraham. So Jesus, number one, when, with respect to the Abrahamic covenant, Jesus is the promised seed. Right? Galatians chapter 3. I'll get there eventually. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 says this, What then? 
was the purpose of the law. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. So, the law was added because of sin until that capital S seed, that is Jesus, to whom the promise referred. So the Abrahamic promise referred to the seed, capital S, which is Jesus. And if we continue to go on through that passage, which we'll allude to a couple of verses later, it is undeniably clear that the seed is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the promised seed. Number two, through Jesus, all types of people will be blessed with salvation. Because now in the Old Testament, it's it's kind of vague when when God is making this covenant to Abraham, right? Through you, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe it's earlier in chapter 3, and I won't be able to probably find it off the top of my head. Yeah, so in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Galatians said, The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So here, Paul identifies and defines what he means by all nations will be blessed. He is preaching the gospel to, to Abraham in advance that the Gentiles will come to faith. That's what is meant. So through Jesus, all types of people will be blessed with salvation. Look at the end of Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29. And he says, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You who belong to Christ then are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's not saying that all of a sudden black and white and male and female have gone away, that like those genetic distinctions no longer exist. They exist. But with respect to the Abrahamic covenant and the blessing, the saving blessing that Jesus provides, there is no distinction. He saves all types of people. So the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of a land, seed, and a blessing. Jesus is the promised seed. He is blessing people of all types with salvation. Verse 14 specifically uses the term blessing about Christ. Yeah. Yeah, so he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, which that is an important verse for something later. So then we might ask, okay, so those are aspects in which Jesus is, God is already fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, correct? So what about the land? Well, it doesn't really, I mean, part, I don't want to say it doesn't really matter because that was a part of what God promised, right? It's not necessarily the most important thing, but it is important in the sense that, well, God is faithful. He made the promise. Is he going to keep his promise? Of course he's going to. Well, Israel is said to have possessed the land in the Old Testament, right? But even when we think about that, it seems that there's something more that that land promise is pointing towards, right? Right? 
Like, literally, Israel, you're going to enjoy for however long a plot of land. And it seems, as we go throughout the course of Scripture, that there's something greater to which that promise is pointing, such as the new heavens and the new earth. That new heavens and new earth is going to be the ultimate full fulfillment, if you can get that idea, when I say that Jesus is the key to the full to understanding the fullness of God's promises. That's what I mean here. Is that Jesus is the key to understanding that, hey, he wasn't just only referring to this plot of land. There is an ultimate fulfillment in view, even though the Old Testament writers might not have fully comprehended that. So let's keep going. The Mosaic Covenant. So there's the Abrahamic. We see that Jesus is the seed and he's fulfilling that Abrahamic blessing by giving salvation to Gentiles. The Mosaic Covenant. I just vaguely wrote Exodus and Deuteronomy. You can find the chapters. The giving of the Ten Commandments starts in, or the account starts in Exodus 20. You can look and, and follow along as you like. But let me give you a couple. So what is the Mosaic Covenant? It's the giving of the law, right? The God's people, they've they've come out of <clears throat> Egypt. What was that? It sounded like a twenty two or something. So Mosaic so Abraham is created, the nation is essentially kind of created, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're growing up, they go to Egypt, they come out of Egypt, they do the Exodus thing, which is a big deal, and then they're given God's good word. They're given his commandments. They're given, they're, they're given this law so that they know how to live, they know what it's, it looks like to please God. But we also find out in Galatians, if we were to do a study, that the law was there to actually, actually, I think it might be Romans, to intensify or increase the sin. I'm thinking, yikes. And so what we find is that Israel failed miserably. (laughs) They failed and 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 they continually reap the consequences of their failure to abide by the Mosaic Covenant which when it was given they wholeheartedly supported and said yes we'll obey and what was it like a few hours later they were melting down all their 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 gold in the golden calf right I mean it, it started downhill very quickly and so how does Jesus fulfill all of these restrictions that are meant to expose to all humanity their sin. Well, one, Jesus fulfilled the law by living a life of perfect obedience. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, and thereby he fulfilled the law. <clears throat> and just to cite a few texts, Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weakness, but we want have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Romans 5.19, For justice through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many, that is Jesus, the many, his chosen, will be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 1.30, It is because of him... Was it 1 Corinthians 1.30, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus... And then he describes Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So Jesus has fulfilled the law by living a life of perfect obedience. Number two, how has Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant? The law. Jesus fulfilled the law by his full and final sacrifice for sin. And I wish we had weeks to go through this. But Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. If I can encourage you, don't even do your homework for next week. Just spend your week in Hebrews. And be in awe of who Christ is. Jesus fulfilled the law by his full and final sacrifice for sin. wonder if there's anything I can pick up really quickly. I want to read the whole thing and we don't have time. But just read Hebrews 9 and 10. Then lastly, Jesus fulfilled the law by his priesthood beginning at his resurrection. And that you find in Hebrews 7. Say that again. Jesus fulfilled the law by his priesthood which began at his resurrection. So this is where I might just kind of lose some of you. But here... Here's the idea. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, verses 11 through 28, and, and even before that, talk about how Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, Melchizedek existed before the law was given, right? Because he appeared to Abraham. He existed before the law was given, and it wasn't until the law that we had the Levitical priesthood, right? And so there was... A sense, so then you have so the Melchizedekian king priest that it makes this appearance, who is like Christ, and then we have the law given, which stipulates a Levitical priesthood, and a priest and a king can't be the same person, and then we have Psalm one ten, which prophesies someone is coming that is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when you read the Old Testament, you're thinking, maybe this whole Mosaic law, Levitical priesthood thing isn't going to be the thing that lasts. And then you get to Hebrews and you find out that Jesus has been declared at his resurrection and ascension to be a priest, not after the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, but after Melchizedek. The one that predated that is going to be uniquely a king priest, which was forbidden by the law. And then what you find out in Hebrews 7 is that for the priesthood to change, the law had to be changed. So in other words, for Jesus, when he was when he rose again and was enthroned in heaven as the king priest, according to Psalm 110. One 
or verse one and verse four. He entered that, and immediately that law had to be done away with because he was the priest. No longer after the Levite priesthood, but after the Melchizedekian priesthood. And Hebrews is clear that the law has to change when the priesthood changes. So the law is inherently obsolete. It was built to be obsolete. It was not built to last. And Jesus fulfills the law. So now that I blew your mind, let's move on to the Davidic covenant. So we have Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic. He fulfills the Mosaic. He fulfills the Davidic. The Davidic covenant is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the Davidic covenant is that God... So David wants to, out of his love for God, he wants to build God a house. Because they've been roaming around for a while, and he wants to build God a house. And God turns the tables and says, No, I'm God. I'm going to actually build you a house, an everlasting house. I'm going to make one of your descendants a king forever. And I'm going to make your kingdom forever. That one of your descendants will forever be on the throne. So that means one of two things would happen. Either he would have a human king somewhere in the line, always continue to be a human king forever. Alive and then die and then alive and die. Or he would some at some point in time in the flow of history insert an everlasting king in the line of David. And that's what he chose to do. Because right in Matthew 1 that we already read in the genealogy, Jesus the Messiah is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So how does Jesus fulfill the Davidic covenant? Is he in any sense right now fulfilling that Davidic covenant? Or are we waiting for Jesus to come and fulfill the Davidic covenant down the road? I would suggest that the Bible is clear that Jesus has been already declared the Davidic king. So Jesus was declared the Davidic king at his resurrection and enthronement at God's right hand. So how does Jesus fulfill the Davidic covenant? Jesus was declared to be the Davidic king at his resurrection and enthronement at God's right hand. This is, again, where we see this idea of already, not yet. And I could spend lots and lots of time walking through the New Testament and trying to prove to you that Jesus is king. Let me give you just a couple texts. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, which speaks directly to what I just said. Romans 1, 4 says this, And who, through the Spirit of holiness was appointed or declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, just bear with me here. Has Jesus always been the Son of God? Based on two weeks ago, we would say yes, right? Because based on our orthodox understanding of the triunity of God, there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each being fully God. 
But Romans 1 says, Paul says, that that Jesus was declared or appointed the Son of God at his resurrection. Well, that seems kind of redundant. Right? Or maybe there's something significant to the fact that Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God. Is there any sense in which Jesus took on a new aspect of God's sonship? Not in a Trinitarian, eternally existing divine sense. Well, I think there is if you compare this to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, you might be thinking I'm nuts. Hopefully not. But let me read to you 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 14. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Sound familiar? I would like to submit to you that what Paul is saying in Romans 1, what the author of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 1, is that Jesus at his resurrection, he always was the Son of God in the Trinitarian sense. But he was not always the Davidic son, the one who was coming in the line of redemptive history as the one, David's son, the son of God who was going to be king. And what I would suggest to you is that Paul and the author of Hebrews sees Jesus in this stream of promise making and promise keeping. And when Paul says, he was appointed or declared to be the Son of God in power, that he was being there declared at his resurrection to be king. The king from David's line that was going to be the forever king. Jesus is David's forever king. He is our forever king. Further proof would be the events at, um, on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verses 33 through 36, and you could read the whole thing. But there, nearing the end of that, Peter says, cites David, David's prophecy of Psalm 1101, which is a Davidic messianic psalm, prophesying the installment of Jesus Christ, the Davidic king, who is going to be both king and priest. And there, Peter says, at his resurrection, and the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel, Peter says, be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, King, and Messiah, the saving one. So what about his forever kingdom? I believe that with Christ's kingship, that forever kingdom has become part of the already fulfillment. That there is an aspect of which that kingdom is already taking place. Yet, there's going to be a lot more of that kingdom to come, right? Thus the already, not yet. 
There's going to be a day when Jesus returns and we are glorified in our bodies and judgment of sinners is going to take place and we will fully enjoy Him and His people forever. And He will rule over us with no enemies and no sin and no junk and no none of this stuff that we have to pray for because our hearts are so burdened. So there is an already and there is a not yet. And God is fulfilling His promises in Jesus. So we can glorify and praise Jesus because God makes promises to us and He keeps them. Now the new covenant. Quickly. Yikes. The new covenant. What is the new covenant? You can find this in Jeremiah 31. That's the only explicit text in the Old Testament that says new covenant. But other texts that speak to the new covenant are Joel chapter 2, near the end of the chapter, then Ezekiel 36. Here are the, the big ideas of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. I hope I got that right. It's got to be 31, right? Maybe it's 30. I think it's in the 30s. Just trust me on that one. Might not be 31. I'm pretty sure it is, though. But Jeremiah speaks of forgiveness of sins. Sacrifice for sins. It it promises that with that forgiveness of sins and the law being written on our hearts, that God will be our God and we will be His people. So that right relationship is going to be restored, right? And then what we learn when we cross-reference that promise with stuff in Isaiah and then Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36, we find that the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit that we, we, we referenced in Galatians chapter 3, that promised Holy Spirit is going to be part of this equation. So, the Holy Spirit promised Forgiveness of sins, law written on our hearts, I will be their God, they will be my people. Those are the big ticket items of the new covenant. And the distinct distinguishing feature of the new covenant is its comparison to the old. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have time to, to go through that. But let me show you how the new covenant is being fulfilled presently by Jesus. Number one, Jesus inaugurated or he began the fulfillment of the new covenant at his death. Because a covenant has to be inaugurated or an, or enacted by blood. So Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave thanks, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, he took the cup. said, this is... The what? New covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, when he dies, says that this is the new covenant of my blood. If you again, over the next couple or next week, study Hebrews, look at Hebrews 8 through 11, chapters 8 through 11, and you will be um, staggered at how explicitly clear the new it is that the new covenant, the better covenant, has done away with the old obsolete covenant that just it wasn't 
bad in the sense of sinful or something. It just was deficient. It wasn't good enough to meet the need. So number one, Jesus inaugurated the fulfillment of the new covenant at his death. Number two, Jesus dispensed the promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus dispensed the promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. If you look at Acts 2, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he cites the prophecy of Joel 2 and says, this is what's happening. These people aren't drunk like you think. All these people talking in the Spirit. These people aren't nuts. They're not drunk. What's happening here is actually the fulfillment of the New Covenant prophecy in Joel 2. What you're seeing is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because what's happening is 50 days after this whole Jesus died. So Jesus died. And Pentecost means 50. And so 50 days after Jesus' death is when Pentecost happened. And so we had 50 days, or three days, he was in the tomb, he rose again, then he was present for 40 days on earth, showing himself, right? So then we had at least seven days. So for a week, people are in Jerusalem waiting for the, for the Spirit to come. And the Spirit finally comes seven days later on the day of Pentecost. In keeping with the Old Testament promise. So Jesus inaugurated the new covenant at his death, doing away with the old covenant, because the old covenant covenant is completely and utterly deficient, right? So remember the old covenant, you had to keep coming back for sac and make sacrifice and make sacrifice. There's a constant remembrance and reminder of your sin. And with Jesus, when he inaugurated that new covenant, what do we get? We get the law written in our hearts, we get the spirit within us. We get forgiveness of sins through a once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. So some of you might be wondering, well, what about... Because it seems like the New Covenant promises a a future conversion of, of Israel because, after all, the New Covenant was made to initially to Judah and Israel. Well, read Romans 11. I think that you would have to take great pains to read something other than there's going to be a an ethnic a conversion of ethnic Jews in Romans 11. In the future, there's going to be a turning of ethnic Jews. I mean, you can't get around that. I, I don't think you can get around that in Romans 11. So, we went through a lot of biblical theology trying to piece together how Jesus fulfills God's promises how God has proven to be in the in in the New Testament how he has proven to be a promise keeping God so if I could maybe just summarize it this way uh, not that way Jesus Christ as I said at the beginning is the fulfillment of all of God's promises he is the center He's the centerpiece of this whole story. So we can glory in Christ. He's it. He's, dare I say, the interpretive key to understanding Scripture. Without...
Christ, it doesn't make sense. So he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So you think, well, what what does that mean to you and me right now? Because that sounds a lot like an awful lot of heady stuff that doesn't really like like come down to real life right now. Well, let's let's step back from all these big grand promises and all the intertextual comparisons that we've done and. I would love to do a whole semester on just this because that would be a blast. We could look at text and actually dive into them all and it would be fun. But let me put it this way. God's faithful. God can be trusted. When life throws you a curveball, God can be trusted. Because God has done nothing but prove that he is trustworthy. Because when God had every right to squash us like the rebellious bugs that we were, he turned to us in mercy and he made us a promise. And then he just kept right on fulfilling that promise. And it just kept getting better and better and better. Wait, you're telling me that you just picked a family by your sovereign grace through whom that your son's going to come? Yeah, I did. And you and your grace are going to show me what a turd I am? And how I can't keep your restriction than how much I need you? You're going to do that for me? Not leave me in my arrogance and pride? Yeah, I'm going to do that. Mosaic. And wait, that seed is going to be a king? A perfect king. Not like the duds that we've had. But it's going to be a king? A legit king? Not like Saul where he's good looking but he's a doofus? But a perfectly obedient king who's going to rule and reign in righteousness and fairness and peace over a forever kingdom? Get out. And wait, I don't have to go back and offer sacrifice after sacrifice? Because you are going to sacrifice that seed for me? And that seed's going to be my substitute? Can it get any better? I've never heard of any other God sacrificing themselves. What better news can we have as Christians? That the whole of biblical history points to the grace of God. That he has made promises to us and he has kept his promise in the person and work of Christ. And if he has done that, if he has done all of that to keep his promises, how much more can we be confident that when he says he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead and to give us our eternal salvation and that the spirit he's caused to live within us is going to be the guarantor of that salvation? How much more can we trust that when he's proven that? down through the course of history. How much more can we trust when he says, everything for you, my child, I'm working out for your good and my glory. We can trust that. 
when our house burns down, like the south, or like the south that's dead years and years ago, and like the Pantelli's had, or when my friend is struck with cancer, or when our relationships go to pot. God is good. He's always good. And he's always working for good, and we can trust that because He is faithful. Or when it seems like our Christian lives have been stalemated, God will finish what He started. He's still working, and He doesn't give up. He's always working. Or when we feel like we don't have what we need, God will supply all your needs. See, God is faithful. He's proven His faithfulness over, over, over again. God's a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Look no further than Jesus Christ so that we can glory and be reminded of God's faithfulness. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have given us Your Son, Jesus, on whom all of these promises are fulfilled. May we look to Him when sin so easily entangles us when the obstacles and difficulties of life seem to weigh us down when we when the real life circumstances seem to collide head on with who we think you are God would we turn to you and see your son and see your faithfulness and trust you and just trust you we don't have to understand it all We don't even have to like it. But we must find joy because we know that you're at work in our lives. And we can trust you. So help us to trust you. In your name we pray.